For those who, who heard my homily from last Sunday, I, I talked about social justice, particularly the principle of distributive justice, what uh, individuals in a society or a society owes other members in that society. Well, today, if you really focus on the gospel passage itself, the parable speaks of a different type of justice, a justice that we know as commutative justice. That is justice that deals with what is owed between individuals, uh, debts, uh, and the sort. What's interesting, though, if you really pay attention, Jesus takes this parable, it specifically deals with commutative justice, and applies it to a third type of justice, and that is retributive justice. The justice that deals with punishment that comes from the state or from other people as a result of wrongdoing or sin. And so this retributive justice we're going to sort of focus on today is valid. It is necessary. There are crimes that need to be uh, evaluated and punished in the necessary way. Reparation needs to be made, whether it be within an individual relationship or on a larger scale. It's retributive justice that we see being called for today by those victims of uh, police violence. And so even broader calls of retributive justice for wrongdoings amongst our two certain groups of people throughout the nation and throughout the world. But what the readings do today and what we're going to look at is not specifically the boundaries of retributive justice or, or what goes into it, but instead what happens when that, that call for justice, a desire for justice goes astray, when something goes wrong, and instead of that genuine desire for justice, it becomes a seeking of vengeance becomes not justified anger, but wrath and hatred, holding a grudge against an individual or against an entire group. That's what I want to look at today. What is the process? What happens that perverts the genuine desire for retributive justice and even righteous anger and turns it into this cancer? The cancer of wrath that destroys persons, relationships, and can destroy a society and a community. We've all encountered, we've all been victims of injustice, possibly large ones, maybe small ones. And we know what it feels like to be wronged. It's not something that is pleasant. Whether it's a genuine injustice that we experience or even a perceived injustice. Quite often, maybe there was nothing really done wrong to us who perceived it as an injustice. And so our, our reactions vary, but it often has sort of the same qualities. And we are angered. We are hurt. We feel violated. We might even feel confused, particularly if it's a betrayal or something that happened to someone who was very close to us. And we ask the question, why? Why did this happen? And the anger, the desire for justice, of course, can bubble 
to the surface. There's nothing wrong with this. This is the natural reaction to being wronged. The problem, though, is this. And so often, we begin to take that injustice and internalize it. We begin to ruminate over it. We begin to think about it and go over it and over it and over again and get angrier and it becomes wrath and we want vengeance and there's no way we are going to allow this other person, this other group to continue in this state. And so that overthinking of it, it gets trapped in our heads and it becomes a cancer, a cancer that eats us alive. We hug it tight, as the book of Sirach says in today's first reading. And so this seed grows into wrath. It grows into resentment. It grows in a desire for vengeance to the point you can't even reason anymore. All you want to do is seek vengeance. Like Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride, totally blinded because of his desire for revenge. And so what happens is, because of that, once it comes to a certain point, the person who hurt us, we split them black. No longer are they good or potentially good and evil. They're all evil. They're anathema. They need to be destroyed. We want to have nothing to do with them. They have no rights. They have no dignity because of what they have done. We can't even look them in the face. We can't even be around them because of that. And so, even if the other party comes and begs forgiveness, please, I'm sorry for what I did, or it's all a big misunderstanding, please grant me your forgiveness. Like the servant does in the second part of the gospel, we refuse. There's no way I'm forgiving you for what you did. It is an unforgivable offense. We refuse even to listen. But what we don't realize is that even though our own hearts and minds can come up with this wrath, the evil one, as we talked about a few weeks ago, loves this scenario. He can't create something out of nothing but he can take our anger and our wrath and our vengeance and he can use it and grow it and make it bigger. And so division in relationships, particularly amongst Christians who are called to forgive one another, divisions in the church, divisions amongst brothers and sisters. So why do we do this? Why do we give Satan free reign? Why do we hug our wrath and our anger tight. Well, of course, it's human nature. We are fallen. We have a tendency towards sin. But there's another reason and something that I really prayed about and realized today. We hold on tight our anger, our desire for vengeance, because it gives us a sense of control. We've been wronged. It's like our world is out of control. We get a sense of control, but specifically, we get power. By holding on to that wrath and that anger, we get power. Because when we're hurt, when we're violated, when we're betrayed, we feel vulnerable. We feel weak. How did this happen to us? And so we want to gain control of the situation. 
We want to go from being the powerless victim to the one who has power over the other person. I have power over you now. I refuse to forgive. I am in control. We realize, though, that refusal to forgive then is not about justice. It's not about giving someone what they're owed, but it is about power, especially when it comes to groups, groups who refuse to forgive. And this is the, the, the legacy of Marxism. You know a little bit about Marxist economic pol political theory. You have the oppressed, the proletariat, who are wrong, who are wronged, who are victims, who are powerless. And what they do is they build up resentment and hatred and anger towards the rich, the wealthy, the bourgeoisie. And granted, maybe it starts off as something which is righteous because they are being cheated out of capital. They're being cheated out of their work. They're oppressed. What happens is this resentment and this anger turns into wrath and it turns into a power grab, a grab for power, to feel like they have something by overthrowing the bourgeoisie, and then establishing that dictatorship of the proletariat, which is only supposed to exist for a little bit of time, but we know how that happens. Millions and millions of people dead because of the lie of Marxism. And so that grab for power, whether it be as an individual or a group in seeking vengeance, really reveals our deep insecurity. People who are insecure, the ones that have been violated, the ones that are filled with fear, particularly on an individual level, are the ones who want to exert power. These are the bullies who threaten violence, who threaten that they are going to get revenge. But we all know the bully is insecure. All you have to do is stand up to them, to call their bluff. I've noticed in my time as a priest that the individuals who have a smaller problem with wrath, who usually find it easier to forgive those who have hurt them or individuals who are secure in their identity. They know who they are, they know God's love for them, and they don't hold grudges because they know that this desire for power, this desire to control, only allows the person who hurts you to control you. As long as you refuse to forgive, you're bound to them. They actually control you. That wrath and that desire for vengeance, that holding on to the grudge, controls you. So what's the solution? If we find that we struggle with this, how do we overcome it? How can we overcome this desire for vengeance, this holding a grudge, this resentment that we have towards other people? I think the answer is what I talked about a couple of weeks ago. We've got to call them up, sit down with them, look them in the eye and say, I forgive you. I forgive you for what you've done to me. I want to reconcile. The key is reconciliation. We've got to look them in the eye. It seems like two billion years ago, but when Sister Miriam was here, she talked about that, the root of the word reconciliation, from the Latin word chilia, which are the little hairs on your eyes, your eyelashes. You get so close looking at someone eye to eye that your eyelashes touch. 
That's reconciliation, and that's what we're called to do. But remember, it's the insecure people, the fearful people who can't make eye contact, who look down, who won't face someone and make eye contact, who won't reconcile. But we've got to make that eye contact. We've got to say, I forgive you, because it draws us out of our head. Eye contact stops us from ruminating, stops the evil one from whispering in our ear. We've got to work for reconciliation, for the restoration of that relationship. And this, though, is the challenge of passing from retributive justice to what's known as restorative justice, something a lot of people may not have heard about. Retributive justice seeks punishment. Restorative justice is different. It acknowledges that indeed a wrong has been done and there needs to be reparation. If I broke your window, you can forgive me, but the window still has to be fixed. But restorative justice is about not only restoring and fixing that window, but restoring right relationship. Restoring broken relationships and restoring what was lost between individuals or groups who have hurt another or who have been hurt. Not seeking punishment through some adversarial system, but seeking restoration. I'm going to watch this Iranian film called Close Up, a very unique film done about 30 years ago. And it, it sort of told the story of a man who posed as a director to go and extort money from a rich family because he was poor. He was caught. And it was interesting. A lot of the movie was in the courthouse. And there was a judge there not to determine punishment, but to hear both sides of the story and to mediate and get them to reconcile, to get them to come to an agreement where there would be forgiveness and restoration to the point, I don't want to give the movie away, that the man not only became friends with the family, that they were all willing to act as themselves in this movie to demonstrate the possibility of restoration, of friendship and relationship in a very unique and powerful way. The gospel says if you have an issue with your brother, go to him and try to settle it. Get a mediator if you need to. But so often Christians want to run and sue, destroy other people, seek vengeance. We need, I think as individuals and potentially even in a greater justice system when we see reform, a movement towards restorative justice. But what happens if that person that we say, I forgive you, I want to restore this relationship, refuses to say I'm sorry, refuses to admit or acknowledge they do anything wrong, did anything wrong, what should you do? Should you say, well, the person's a jerk now. I'm, I have every right to say I don't want to be friends with them. I want them punished. No, Jesus is clear. It's a non-negotiable. You forgive 77 times. You never stop forgiving. You always offer that olive branch even if they refuse. You can't force them. You can't force them to say I'm sorry or to seek forgiveness or restoration, but we can't give up offering it. 
or being willing to forgive because why? No person is unredeemable. Everyone is possible of being forgiven. Every relationship needs to be restored. We have to have hope that others can have a change of heart. And if they don't say they're sorry, then guess what? Same thing happened to Jesus. And we can look to the cross. Here is the innocent man. And the people who killed him refused to say they were sorry. They didn't say, Lord, we made a mistake. We're taking you down from the cross. But Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's a great insight. When we want to forgive another person, we assume the best intentions. We assume they didn't know what they were doing. I forgive you. You didn't know what you were doing. Giving them the benefit of the doubt. We are called to be like Jesus all the time. He went through it. We may have to go through it too. But it never gives us the excuse to say we're not going to offer forgiveness. I want to wrap this up by presenting a quote from one of my professors in seminary, great man, Monsignor Livio Molina. And here's probably this quote, the best description of what forgiveness is that I've ever read. And I'll close with this. He says, quote, the price of forgiveness for both the one who concedes it and the one who receives it is the passage through death to resurrection. It is death to one's own false and hypocritical good conscience, the security of feeling in the right, to the complacency derived from sensing an unjustly received offense. Death in accepting the reality of an offense given that wounds one's own dignity and not stepping back out of shame. To forgive is to step down from one's pedestal and lower oneself to making the laborious climb back up together with the one who has created the offense. It is taking co-responsibility for the other's conversion without letting a self-righteous justice get in the way." Unquote. Forgiveness is about resurrection. Unforgiveness is about death. We are called to be like Christ and in our willingness to forgive those who have hurt us bring about a resurrection in our lives, in relationships, in our society, and in our world. Amen.